Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Common Good Project. My name is Chris Conway, and I am a co-convener of the project. Today, we continue with our four-part lecture series presented by my co-convener, Ryan Mead, entitled Regulations and the Common Good, Compliant to the Common Win. Uh, today is our third lecture in the series, and uh, this lecture is titled Regulating Human Acts Without the Meaningful Approval of the Legislature. Uh, be sure to check back in tomorrow. Uh, we'll have our last lecture in the series. It'll be a response panel, uh, including uh, Connor Casey, Michael Ferran, and Adrian Vermeule. As always, thank you to the Faculty of Law, as well as Blackfriars Hall and the Aquinas Institute for hosting the Common Good Projects events. Today, we wanna to provide an extra thank you to the Aquinas Institute as the principal host of these four lectures. As a reminder, these lectures, like our conversation series, springs from Thomas Aquinas's definition of law being an ordinance of reason for the common good promulgated by the one who has care of the community. Uh, the format of this lecture will be as the other lectures. Um, Ryan will present a formal paper, uh, and then I will provide uh, a couple uh, questions to Ryan, uh, and then I'll read any questions that we put in, that are put into the chat box. As always, we encourage that you put questions into the chat box. Uh, if we don't get to all of them, which we'll try to, uh, we will use them for future programming or uh, in the case of these lectures, Ryan will likely address them in our next lecture. Uh, I'll dispense with our bios, uh, which are available on the Faculty of Law website and hand it over to Ryan to begin. Ryan, you have the floor. Thank you, Chris, and thanks as always again to uh, Blackfriars and to the Faculty of Law and to the Aquinas Institute. Uh, so we are in the third lecture of this series on regulations and the, the common good. Uh, and uh, we'll see if I can, I can stay within time this, this time. Uh, so uh, where are we in these four lectures? Well, in examining regulations as executive action, I've been trying to deal with the simple fact that we in the West live in societies in which far more regulation governs our day-to-day -day life than passed by legislatures. This is just a reality. Unless regulations by the executive are not law and wholesale unjust, we need to make sense of regulation. And more deeply, we need to make sense of how and when the executive can act with the force of law not just the coercive power of the state, but when can the executive act which binds in conscience as true law? I've tried to set out that this is not a discussion inside of a specific state. It's very hard not to use references to specific states. Uh, abstraction eventually gets down to, <laughs> to the particular thing that you're trying to apprehend, but I'm trying to keep this at a theoretical level as much as I can since we have listeners who are in many different states and live in many different constitutional orders. So uh, although this is not set in a specific state, trying to say something more fundamental about the law and the state and the, the role that the executive function can play. I'd also like to say for uh, just, just for a moment, thank you to everyone who's emailed me some thoughts. Uh, there was a question in the first lecture uh, that I stumbled through that Chris asked about, is this a theory of law or is this a theory of the state? And I, I've actually thought a lot more about that question 
in the past few weeks. And I would go back to what I say, but I, I, I think that what I say, what I said there uh, is, uh, it, it has more impact uh, in, in my thinking as this goes on. And what I said in answer to that question is, is that uh, it's a theory of law as the law plays out in regulations, but it's also a theory of the state uh, because I'm not sure that we can have a theory of the state without having a theory of law. How can the state use its coercive power morally, justly, and at and what times is it unjust? But wrapped up in a theory of law and the theory of the state is a theory of who we are as humans. And this goes back to the point I made in the uh, first lecture, or tried to make, about the unity of reality and that all things are connected to all things. Uh, once we start disconnecting them, then we start to go down a fairly dangerous role. And at least in my view, uh, there's many things that, uh, th that uh, are viewed today as disconnected and it ultimately leads to how we view ourselves uh, as disconnected from each other. Um, or it might even start there. Uh, uh, where we view ourselves as disconnected, as autonomous individuals, simply floating around, trying to develop contracts of sorts, metaphorical contracts with, uh, with, with other, other individuals, rather than being naturally inclined to society. So with those points in mind, uh, looking back now at the executive making regulations, the executive acting, in the state. The executive's acts must fulfill the same definition of law that Aquinas sets out as much as legislatures must keep that definition in mind, which we've used over and over again uh, throughout the past two terms in the Common Good Project as an ordinance of reason for the common good promulgated by the one who has care of the community. So if the executive is to act, if the executive is to regulate and we accept that those actions as law, or at least the state tries to enforce them as law and, uh, and, and uh, impose penalties for breaking them, then the regulations by an executive, the executive's actions must fit those, those definition, that definition of law uh, in order to be uh, just and uh, to also, as we'll see in a moment, to it will be the regulator of executive action. Now, any attempted law not only always involves attempted morality, a vision of values, but law must be judged by a normative morality. This is something that I asserted uh, a bit in the first lecture and then last in the last lecture. Uh, tried to drive home uh, 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 even more so. And that normative morality I discussed derives from human nature. The content of the normative morality is it's more than coexistent with human purposes. Normative morality is what by nature we must do in order to achieve our purpose. It's discovered by examining our purpose and examining how we get to that purpose. Uh, this is what I believe Aquinas refers to as the natural law. Uh, and in fact, Aquinas characterized the natural law, I think, in, uh, 
very interestingly as a participation in the eternal law. So human law, although it need not, as Thomas would say, it may not pro uh, prohibit every vice and command every virtue, uh, when, it, when human law is enacted, when there's a need for human law, uh, it needs to conform to normative morality, to the natural law. In some ways, we might even say that human law participates in the natural law Partici the, and, and participates in a certain way in our human nature and directs and is directed to our end. Uh, so this point about the final end, the final cause, uh, is, uh, I, I, I believe, incredibly important in looking at law. It, uh, in, in, uh, as I described last week, Aristotle's theory of causation uh, and the, the, the one cause that is, in, in my view, the most important, uh, the final cause. All four causes are, are important. We can't understand the why. We can't apprehend things without uh, thinking through the four causes, uh, whether we know we're thinking through them or not. But, uh, but this final cause, uh, as, as I've described, I, I believe gets forgotten in law. And this final cause is, uh, is related to who we are as humans, what is our final cause, what, what, what is our nature, what does our nature drive towards, how, what does our nature perfect to. Um, that purpose, that final cause is, is happiness. And that is something where I also described ever so briefly, and didn't want to get too deep into this point uh, to avoid confusing those who are not familiar with it, but uh, I think there's a, a very important concept of actuality preceding potentiality, which Aristotle describes and also Aquinas goes quite, quite deep into it. That, that what it is that we can become or anything has the potential to become exists in a certain way before the potential to become it. It's, uh, it's a bit as if you can't have a map with a road that doesn't go somewhere. Uh, we used to have maps, of course, uh, you know, few centuries ago, and maybe even a century or two ago in some unexplored places where it just ended, you know, there'd be dragons. And, uh, um, but even, even though it, even though that those maps ended, uh, and because people didn't know exactly what was there, they didn't think nothing was there. Uh, and to the extent that we act as humans, as if we don't have a purpose, if we, if there aren't things, if there aren't normative things that we as humans must do or conform ourselves to, uh, that, to uh, try to achieve that end, to try to achieve that purpose, that I think is going to spill over into law. So uh, it, it, we might say that it is, uh, it's bad enough that an individual uh, is, gets disconnected with their purpose with their nature, disconnected from their end. But when many people get disconnected from their ends and when the state through law using coercive power gets disconnected from the ends of law and what law serves as its purpose, 
uh, we're in a very dangerous position. We've moved from something where an individual might be rogue, and in fact, laws in the course of power of the state might, might try to bring that person back into at least physical accord with society by trying to end a, a personal violence or personal destruction. But when that takes hold in a culture and it becomes reflected in the state and it becomes reflected in the law, then what type of state, what type of law do we have? What type of society do we have then where the society is disconnected? Individuals are disconnected from their end. Society becomes disconnected from their end. The state becomes disconnected with its purpose. And it, at least in my view, what happens is, is this is where we see oftentimes either the state becoming an end in itself, or those who have control of the levers of the state use the state for their own private benefit. And private benefit, not only in a pecuniary sense, in that they may be using the state to enrich themselves, but they might be using the state and the power to impose something on individuals that is not connected to a broader sense of who we are as humans, a broader sense of where our purpose is disconnected from our human nature. It may just be imposing uh, someone's personal ideas, uh, personal psychology, uh, personal problems uh, onto that, that society. Um, that I would say is uh, we often think of private benefit versus common benefit as, as, as Aquinas uh, describes some of the differences in, in, uh, in acts that, uh, and laws that uh, don't hit the mark and aren't directed to the common good. But I, I, think, I think private benefit, particularly in the amount of control that the executive can have today, private benefit needs to be seen beyond just uh, whether it's lining the pockets of those who have uh, the levers of, of power and can use the coercive power of the state, but also whether they uh, are trying to, to bend culture and society to their own ideas that are uh, of who we are as human that are humans that are disconnected from common sense and also disconnected from the reality of our of, of our uh, of, of who we are in as a unified human in, in body and soul in, in our can learn a lot from from just looking at our biology and and how we interact with with humans. Now, of course, what I'm saying here is, is uh, uh, there's a danger that I'm doing the same thing, and I that I have a view of who we are as humans, and I uh, not making any secrets that uh, that the how I see humans as social, as having a nature, as having a purpose. That I believe that that is how law should go about making, being made and how, uh, how lawmakers should go about being made. Um, so there's, there's, going to be, there's going to be some arguments uh, uh, over this uh, as, to, as, as to what the, the, the lawmakers think are the purpose of humans and are the think of the, uh, of, of, uh, of the goals of law. Uh, I do think though that uh, as we get a little bit deeper today is there is a difference between 
thinking about what laws should say in the context of the common good and having arguments over that of whether the policy should be X or Y. Should the income tax be X percent or Y percent? Uh, those, are, th those are valid arguments and we might need to uh, you know, metaphorically slug it out a bit <laughs> politically in order to get to something that is, that is, a, that is an answer. Um, but keeping the common good in mind and also keeping in mind that the great means to achieving happiness is friendship and keeping in mind that we need to treat others as ourselves, hopefully will enable dialogue. I, I think that that's different from ideologies and views that are not using human nature and not using normative morality, uh, but uh, you know, derive their, their views and the purposes that they try to put into law from some other means. Um, and sometimes those, as, as, we're, as we're gonna talk about in just a moment, the instant commands might very well fit the common good, be needed by the common good. But uh, when a law is not balanced and is not thought about in light of more than just its instant command, what justice might, uh, might, might be clearly stating needs to happen, if, if it's not also thinking beyond to a horizon of the common good, that law, uh, perhaps in its, uh, its immediate sense, might, might solve an, uh, an, a problem. But will it be long lasting? Will it facilitate friendship? Part of my theory here and what I'm advancing and the ideas that I'm advancing is, is that uh, when laws, even when they have a, uh, a good important first need, uh, need that they're trying to address an injustice, that they fail if they're not also thinking about the common good. And they often fail because they're, they're thinking too narrowly about a particular set of facts. Just again, not to say that a particular set of facts or a particular injustice should not be, should not be addressed by the law or the coercive power of the state should not be used. But ultimately it might dissipate in its, in its, uh, in its worthwhileness. So this, uh, this purpose of humans is happiness. And uh, as I mentioned, the great means to happiness for humans is, is, is friendship. So law, to the extent it serves human purposes and, and to the extent that the state is not an end in itself, but it serves humans. It's the state exists to facilitate uh, the conditions for friendship, for flourishing, to, to the conditions that will help us become virtuous. That's the end of law. That's the purpose of, of law, friendship, facilitating friendship. Now, this might seem like a very lofty notion. Um, friendship is wedged into the goal of, of law. Uh, but uh, I have to say that, uh, uh, I'll speak only for me, that in light of the coercive power of the state and the, the amount of violence that the state can wield, through its actions, uh, I would uh, take a chance on trying for lofty goals, uh, even if they fail and need to be course corrected. 
than to settle for no goals at all in a law beyond a very momentary fix of a problem. Uh, momentary fixes that are flash frozen for specific circumstances, we all know will soon encounter instances where those rules can't accommodate uh, the, the changing needs anymore. It might very, we might very well see injustice upon injustice upon injustice because a, a, a law is crafted too narrowly. And if it is not inside of a constitutional order that has enough flexibility so that the law can be, be, be uh, accommodate these new instances of injustice or new instances of risk um, or the changing circumstances in which lawmakers and uh, the uh, civic leaders can see that we need to do something because there's on the horizon, you know, coming up, uh, this is going to be a very rough patch. So we, we might not be there yet with injustice. We might not be there yet with a serious problem, but we can, we can see the road ahead and we need to, we need to prepare. So, uh, you know, this, this, this certainly also gets into questions of, uh, of, of law drafting. Um, and this has a connection as I was describing in some of the other lectures between the structure of a law and the content of a law. So, uh, and as I've been describing, uh, although I'm, I'm trying to focus on the executive and when the executive acts, uh, the, the criteria for the, the, the moral structure of law is the same as it is for the executive or the legislature and the, and the criteria for the content of law is the same for legislature as it is for the executive when both of them act. Um, however, uh, we, we also deal with a reality. And the reality is that legislatures are slow processes. Um, and in some countries and in some constitutional orders, they're it, it, designed, the legislative process through legislatures is designed to be very slow. Um, and some of those designs uh, may uh, very well have been important uh, at the time uh, of, of that, that structuring. So I will step a bit into a, a specific state uh, and that would be the, the, the United States. Um, so its constitution has uh, a structure which slows legislation. Now the legislation can't can happen fast if the right conditions are there, the parties are, are uh, aligned, uh, and the president is also aligned with the legislation, then in theory, things can go quickly. But most of the time it doesn't. And one of the reasons why it doesn't is because although the House of Representatives uh, is, uh, is uh, reflective of the population, so it's a uh, uh, it, it, it tries to represent a specific uh, number of people, get as close as possible, and be as close as they can. Um, the Senate, the, uh, the upper chamber, uh, doesn't represent specific corollaries of people. It represents the individual states that form the federation. And this is not controversial in, in saying that the Senate... Uh, in the in the U.S. is designed to slow 
the passions of the House of Representatives. Uh, so, and it's also designed to reflect the, the notion that the United States is, is a federation. Um, and so this, this non-parliamentary approach uh, is designed to, to slow legislation. It's very, very hard to get, uh, to get legislation through or to get fixes. But I would say even in the UK, where there is a, there's more of an ability to move legislation through parliament, and uh, it, it, and there's always a you know, even if the lords uh, don't approve of it, and uh, there's there's always a, a bit of the nuclear option of of, of the uh, of the government recommending uh, to the queen to create uh, new peers. So there's a, there, there is, there's, there's, a, there's an ability, there's, a, there's certainly, uh, and I think in, uh, in having the Lords is a, is, is a good check and a good uh, a bit of a slowdown to make sure that passions are checked, but it's not at all, the, the, having the Lords review uh, bills is not at all like in the US of having the Senate having to agree. Uh, the point is that uh, I'm not necessarily saying at this point, uh, uh, though you might be able to pick up a, a bit of which which system I'm, I, I perhaps prefer, but it doesn't it, it it doesn't matter so much which system I I I, I might prefer, uh, a parliamentary system uh, versus a, a more structured wired uh, type of approach that uh, that the U.S. has, uh, is th that legislation is hard uh, with legislatures even and even in. Uh, the commons, in order to get legislation through, have to make sure that the uh, the government, the majority party, is able to get all of its members to, uh, or sufficient number of members to get a majority to to pass it. Uh, we saw the repeated failures uh, of attempting to get uh, the previous prime minister's uh, party in line to to pass uh, to pass a bill. So it's not it's it's not it's not that uh, even in parliamentary uh, environments things can go quickly all the time, but my point here is, is legislation is slow, and if laws are passed, if statutes are passed, uh, and their structure, uh, they are very narrow. If we're only if we're only looking to legislatures for law, uh, well, legislatures would even either need to. Uh, they would need to pass uh, statutes that are incredibly detailed in order to uh, accommodate uh, the, the particular goal. But as soon as you pass incredibly detailed statutes, those situations might dissolve. Um, in the US, we had a very uh, uh, interesting, and I think from this perspective, uh, attempt to uh, regulate by Congress uh, the uh, uh, confidentiality of health information. And one of the challenges that occurred in, in that was uh, that it got, the legislation got quite detailed. And so uh, the, when the, the technology moved faster than the legislation did, and uh, once it was on paper, uh, the, the legislation was, uh, was outdated. So, so the structure of statutes, it strikes me just by necessity, legislatures for the common good and for the ability uh, to, uh, to, to uh, have statutes that are 
that are usable uh, beyond a very specific momentary instance need to be broad. And so there is in, uh, in, in just the structure of the way legislatures work, uh, a need to delegate to the executive uh, the ability to fill in the gaps. But legislation through statutes are often uh, a matter of horse trading and compromise and the language may not be coherent and the language may not exactly identify what it is that the executive can do in regulations. So that's where if, the, if those statutes are going to have any meaning, any ability to effectuate justice, the executive in, ex in enforcing those statutes needs to fill in the gaps, needs to try and figure out what it is that that, uh, that law is trying to do and issue regulations uh, or act in a way that, that is trying to effectuate justice. And, and those small details may seem completely removed from the language of the legislation. But uh, I, I think that the simple points of justice require that. Um, also, of course, uh, what I have been talking about is, and this gets to the heart of, of today, is that the executive also seems to need to act even when there's no legislation, that there are times when the executive must act uh, for uh, the, the safety of the community, for the good of the community, for the to ensure that the the uh, uh, care of the community is 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 uh, is, is well uh, in order, uh, needs to act even when there's no legislation, even when there is no written code authorizing the executive to act, uh, even when there's no convention, or possibly even where there is a convention, but the convention by following the convention, the the executive is uh, putting the, the, the safety of the community at risk and putting that community at risk. Now, I'm, I'm well aware that, that uh, what I've been proposing uh, as the executive acting uh, without any reference to legislation uh, or in sometimes uh, in, uh, against an overriding convention uh, has uh, occasionally been called a state of exception. Um, and is described by some uh, theorists as extra legal. I, I don't particularly see that. And uh, I, I don't uh, see that, uh, although yes, the, as, as we'll, we'll discuss in a few moments, the, the executive, when the executive acts, has to be quite careful, uh, especially if there are no guardrails. I don't, see that as somehow putting the rule of law aside. Uh, you know, there can be debates on constitutional orders as to what are the political constraints on the executive? What is, what is the role of the executive? We, we see this if we step out of the executive, uh, we look at the judiciary uh, and there is uh, of course a, a great debate right now uh, in the UK over what is the role of the judiciary? Does it have the ability to engage in judicial review? Uh, is that something inherent in uh, the concept of a Supreme Court? Uh, or 
is that something which is uh, an innovation that has gone beyond uh, the, the office of the Supreme Court? In the United States, the same debate happened. And uh, in uh, earlier, early in its founding, uh, as to the Supreme Court's role in assessing the, uh, the constitutionality, the legality of acts of Congress and acts of the president. Um, and uh, although it's not in the US Constitution, the US Supreme Court found itself uh, taking on that power of, of judicial review and that authority. Um, this lecture is not a discussion and none of these lectures are a discussion frankly, about judicial review. They're more about the, the executive. Um, but the, but it's, it's, it's somewhat of the same question. Is there something inherent in the office? There might be something not inherent in an office of the state. There might be something not inherent in the office of a judge. Uh, and uh, we, we in, in it speaking now, just with the two polities of the UK and the US, uh, we have long-standing rules. Some of them are written, some of them are convention, both in the UK and the US. Uh, that uh, that a judge simply can't that it's just, the judge simply can't wander around and make judgments. Um, that that uh, courts don't do that. They don't they don't affirmatively go out in society. It's not part of their office to go out in society and make judgments. Something has to be brought to the judiciary. So there is, uh, there is something there that is, in, uh, I, I would say, is inherently limiting, um, not just by convention, but in, in simply what does a court do? What does the judiciary do? Uh, in, in it, 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 doesn't make, it doesn't go out and do these affirmative things. Uh, something, a dispute, a question needs to come to itself. So what does the executive do? What's the role of the executive? Uh, in my hypothetical state at base. There might be political constraints that a state decides in its constitutional order to put on the executive. There might also be constraints that it might, might keep a strong executive, but it might put the constraints of elections on the executive, where, where the elections are more frequent uh, or uh, in the case of uh, the Westminster system, where the, the principal figure of the executive function of the state is the, uh, typically the leader of, of the majority party. Um, and uh, that leader might uh, lose confidence and, uh, and the party might choose to uh, have its own intra-party uh, discussion about replacing uh, that leader. We've, certainly seen this many times uh, in, in the UK, where short of an election, um, we certainly just seen, saw it recently. So this question of the executive, what is the executive's role? But in thinking about the executive's role, it, it's in, in the notion that everything is connected to everything. Uh, it's, it, it's it, it, in my view, and perhaps this is just the way I think and the way I uh, trying to explain this, it, it, it's very difficult to do this linearly. Uh, and uh, in terms of, well, X comes first and then Y comes next and so on and so forth. Uh, I was about to say Z, but it, it sometimes sounds a little odd when an American says Z. <laughs> so uh, Z, <laughs> so uh, X, then Y, then Z, 
or Z if you want. Uh, but so you could try to put this out linearly. And certainly uh, that's often the way we think uh, in, in, in Aristotle's uh, view of the causes. He uses language that is, uh, particularly in describing the final cause, that it, it thinks in thinks linearly, or at least tries to describe it linearly to to understand it. But the reality is that his final cause, uh, as we discussed last week, is is not something that comes later in time. Always, it, it 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 we perfect our nature and we move to the final cause. But the final cause actually precedes it. It's constitutive of the thing that it that it is moving, that it's drawing. So, 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 so looking at the executive power, looking at, at regulations, looking at how the executive makes law, you have to be, I think, jumping back and forth uh, between this. Now that we've laid a, a, a variety of foundational points, um, and an important foundational point is the goals of law, as I said, with friendship, but also what, what in structuring law, what must law making do in order to have a true law or a just law or a law that's conforming to normative morality, um, whether it's the legislature or it's the executive. And that is, is that it must have at least two goals. It has a final goal, but its first goal is to deal with an instant command, which, as I mentioned, is usually an injustice, writing relations, or risk management, risk management, risk mitigation. Uh, look, uh, lawmakers look ahead and see something coming down the pike and, and need to try to adjust some things uh, to, to, to uh, help society. Uh, but it's more than just that instant command, which I'll simply call X. But so, so law must do X, of course, and it must be concrete enough so that people know what to do uh, in order to conform uh, to the law. But it also must do Y, which is a second goal, which is a broader role and a, the broader horizon. Uh, it needs to, it needs to orient its instant command or situate its instant command in the context of facilitating flourishing, facilitating friendship, providing the conditions for people to develop virtue. So all policy purposes of law must have these two goals. Uh, if, if an instant command of, of the law is not understandable uh, in, in its particularities and it's way too far too lofty, do good. <laughs> I just said, do good. Uh, well, we could try to discover what, what doing good is, but as using the coercive power of the state simply to back up uh, a, a command that says do good, uh, it would be very difficult, I, I would say, to have uh, to use that type of law for, for ordering society. Uh, so in their particularities, the particularities are important. Imagine, for example, uh, there's a need for uh, workplace safety laws. Uh, and it's very easy to, to, to imagine that. Uh, we we, we uh, in Western countries have many, many workplace safety laws. Well, why do we have that? Uh, well, we have that because, because although we talk about how workers can 
leave a job whenever they want, uh, that uh, it's uh, being an employee or a staff member is, is voluntary. If you pick up and move to a different job. The reality is that most people don't have that ease in doing that. So we could say, we could say very much uh, that uh, if the workplace is unsafe, if there are conditions that are abusive, leave. Why, why stay? Why stick around? Just, just go. Um, most people can't. <laughs> they, they, they simply can't do that. Uh, it's a very small sector of the population uh, that has the luxury of being able to simply quit a job and look for a new one. Uh, or get a new job. And particularly in tough times, the ability to, to move around jobs uh, gets harder and harder. So uh, there is a need for uh, workplaces to, uh, to protect the, the, the worker, the staff member. Now, if there weren't problems and if we were all virtuous people, then presumably there wouldn't need to be any workplace safety rules by the state or laws by the state. Uh, so that is, uh, but that's simply not the case. We're, we're sort of broken individuals and we, we, uh, we uh, it doesn't mean we're oriented to bro brokenness, but we, we have challenges in perfecting our nature that we don't always uh, live up to those goals. So there might be instances where there is abuse of workers, uh, that there is there are unsafe conditions. Um, and, and so that is, that's something which uh, in, in looking at both an instant need of justice, as well as the common good, this is that we don't have a society. This is something that we, we don't have a society where all employers are trying to keep workplaces safe. Maybe if there was an economy, or maybe if there were conditions where people were, uh, where there was such competition for, uh, for, for, for even the lowest paid staff, that employers would want to keep places safe and be very uh, uh, competitive in their, in their safety conditions. And in those instances, well, then workers might be able to move from job to job, and, and the conditions of society may simply create uh, or facilitate, I should say, uh, employers making work, uh, workplaces quite safe. And the state wouldn't have to step in. My point here is, is I mean, it's, it's, it's likely hard to imagine a situation like that, where it's so fluid, uh, where there are simply, uh, you know, all workplaces are simply managed by virtuous, uh, virtuous managers. Uh, but my, my point here is, is, is that uh, the, the state steps in, the law steps in, it uses the coercive power of the state when, when both there is a justice need, but also assessing the common good, assessing what's, what's needed for society to facilitate flourishing at that, at that point. The state is not an end in itself. It doesn't dominate everything. Uh, that's sort of the Hegelian version of, of the state. Uh, the state doesn't have to be uh, uh, commanding everything that is virtuous or everything that is good. Um, but it steps in when it, when it needs to, with these two purposes in mind, an instant command that is understandable and followable, 
uh, and people can rely on what the words mean, but also importantly, making sure that that, that instant command has a broader horizon. The executive, it strikes me, uh, through regulations and also through enforcement, has a particularly weighty burden in ensuring that that law, whether that law derives from a legislature or it derives from executive action and regulation, the executive has a weighty burden to make sure that that law is more than just a flash frozen attempt to right relations that occurred in June, 2021. Because writing the relations that need to be righted today in June, 2021 may not make any sense in June, 2022 uh, or June, 2032. Um, and so there's this flexibility and that, that might be in uh, perhaps for, you know, different, different discussion that might mean that the executive doesn't enforce laws that lead to absurdities where enforcing of laws might lead to injustice. That's a, uh, that's a prerogative, I, I believe, that, uh, that the executive has. Um, but it also may mean that, uh, th that a good structure to a legal system involves broad statutes that orient, that provide policy goals. And then the, the executive makes the detailed regulations and can change the regulations when the common good requires them to be changed. Um, and that flexibility is there with the executive. And also, as I mentioned, uh, attempting to deal with instances that the legislature has not thought about. That the, uh, so, so not having the title of this paper is, involves uh, when regulations are made without meaningful approval of, of the, uh, the legislature. The reason why I added meaningful there is to accommodate the negative procedure approach in Parliament on how regulations through statutory instruments are, are laid before Parliament and Parliament can uh, approve them, veto them, do nothing uh, if, it, if it wants. Um, that that is, uh, while uh, I think that is an important uh, convention, uh, it is and an important part of, uh, of, of uh, the Statutory Instruments Act. Uh, what, it, what it shows more, though, is uh, that, that it's, it's not meaningful approval. And, and as, as I would describe uh, approving or passing something by a legislature, um, uh, because those statutory instruments, the regulations, they're drafted by the executive function. The executive function believes this is needed, that is needed, a gap is needed to fill in this act, or there simply is something that is, uh, is, is, is missing from an act. The regulation is drafted, and then a minister signs the regulation, and as part of the statutory instrument, it's laid before parliament. Uh, by convention, the, uh, the statutory instrument the regulation does not go into effect as law for 21 days. That's by convention. So, so the, the executive get, gets to set, not, not parliament, gets to set the date when that regulation has the force and effect of law. And as I said, by, by convention, it, it, it's 21 days. 
uh, so uh, which gives some time for, uh, for, for Parliament to act. Uh, but two important points is that the regulation can go into effect as a force of law, uh, even in this approach, before Parliament acts. Uh, the par Parliament might veto the, the law, might uh, the statutory instrument, and then the law ceases, the regulation ceases to exist as binding, binding law, but it can go into enforced before. Also, uh, the 21 days is, is convention. Um, we have seen uh, in the coronavirus uh, statutory instruments where a significant number of them have not abided by the convention of 21 days. Uh, and but it's uh, the, the, the notion that the it needs to be 21 days or it's unconstitutional uh, is, uh, is 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 not uh, the, the case that uh, there's uh, there is I suppose a, a convention of the convention <laughs> that that uh, if if needed these regulations can go into effect sooner um, in the U.S. There's the Administrative Procedure Act which controls dates. Uh, through wired code and written code, uh, but this uh, the convention and the ability uh, for the executive to act in the UK uh, through uh, e even when something must be laid before Parliament uh, is is quite flexible, in order to meet those those needs. So, uh, with all that in mind, uh, in the last few minutes, uh, I, I want to address because I, I, I let me back up for a moment here. My apologies. And that is, is uh, because I, I, I said I, that I specifically called out the words meaningful before approval. Uh, and by putting meaningful ap approval uh, in, in there, I'm not trying to suggest that regulations need the approval always of the legislature. Uh, I'm noting that there are uh, constitutional orders that uh, find uh, their way to the executive making law without approval, and that that is accepted uh, fairly universally um, within the constitutional order. We we see that with the uh, with the approach with regulations in the UK, um, and coupled with even even if the uh, effective date is uh, far in advance in which the negative procedure can make its way through, uh, that uh, it, it strikes me that the negative procedure, while important, is, is not quite like passing legislation where the legislature can tinker with the words. They, they, they can't in the negative procedure. So if the executive can do this, if it's, if it's acceptable and I would argue moral, at some point uh, for the executive to make law, make regulations without the meaningful approval of the legislature, where are the limits? Is this, this is something which might be fraught with abuse. How do we avoid those, those limits? What do we demand of the executive? Um, I, I would say that the normative morality uh, that it, all law must seek is a limiting principle uh, on on uh, the executive, uh, and and again, uh, it, it it might seem a little bit odd because that means that the executive, uh, you know, can the executive do anything it wants? Uh, is it unbounded? 
uh, well, um, yes, in a bit, uh, you know, at least physically, but it's not bound, it's not unbounded by morality, but legislatures also uh, are, are the same way. A, a legislature until the next election is physically unbounded um, unless something steps in and changes the legislature from outside. And that's usually not a situation that, uh, that, that, that we like to live through. So, uh, so, so the, advancing the notion that the executive can make regulations uh, as law without meaningful approval, I, I, I think it has both a moral situation in the role of the executive in the state, but it also is not necessarily carrying any greater risk than legislatures that are inflamed by passion and are creating uh, legislation that is is, uh, is is unchecked uh itself until the next until the next election um and and we we, we see in, in in my view we see this authority of the executive to make law through regulations in emergencies um, and as I said before, it's just that oftentimes emergencies are seen as the, as the ability of the executive to make an exception, to override the rule of law, to be extra legal. Uh, but uh, it, it strikes me that this is, this is simply part of the office of the executive. So if, if it is uh, you know, absent specific uh, constraints that a political order has put on the executive, that someone in emergencies must make decisions on how to care for the community uh, and not acting uh, is, uh, is shirking responsibilities. The state shirks responsibilities. So by its nature, uh, the states are not, and, I, and, and this is an important point which I've touched on but not explored deeply, is that states are natural. Uh, they uh, they are now now saying they're natural doesn't mean well there's there's always been the constitutional order of the United Kingdom um, there's always been certainly there hasn't been always been the constitutional order of of the United States uh, uh, since we can pinpoint the the time of the Federation and we can pinpoint in the U.S. the, the time when the Federation. Uh, changed its written code uh, in the current constitution is is its second uh, consti uh, written code constitution. So um, so, so it is uh, it's it's it, 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 this is not to say that um, political orders can't constrain the executive, but simply to the extent that the state is natural. We need the state. We need some type of authority and civil authority in society. We might be able to structure that through democratic means of what it looks like and certainly structure who is serving in those roles. But the state is natural in, in some ways. So the functions of the state, we can debate the, the, what they do, we can debate their boundaries, and we can debate what role they have by virtue of the office, these functions. And that's, that's where the executive sits. And in emergencies, uh, it seems very clear to me that, uh, that the executive has the ability to 
uh, by its virtue of the office to, to act, to safeguard the community. But what I'd like to pose is, is this authority only in emergencies or is it that emergencies reveal an authority of the executive to act for the common good? Um, is it possible that emergencies are merely an easy window into seeing that the executive has moral authority to care for the community without reference to a legislature? And then emergencies are not the boundaries of these circumstances. And although we talk about this in the context of emergencies, we, 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 I, th I think we also need to understand and think about what do emergencies mean today? Does the notion of emergency speak to executive action and regulations in a way that it may not have spoken to us in the recent past? Um, this is where the theory of everything being connected, uh, what is needed for the community uh, in, in the common good uh, it will change. Uh, what is an emergency in one era is not an emergency in another era. Um, and also, uh, you know, is, is it possible, uh, as uh, I think we might be approaching, where we have, uh, we, we live in so many emergencies that they cease to be emergencies anymore. Um, now, this, this is not to say there are no such thing as emergencies. We've all just lived through uh, a global uh, emergency, living through uh, still, uh, I suppose we could say, uh, a global emergency. And as uh, one of our uh, uh, respondents and commentators tomorrow uh, in the final lecture um, has, uh, has nicely put it is, is that emergencies are commonplace. There are fires, there are automobile accidents every day. Um, so uh, I, I don't know if empirically uh, emergencies have increased, but it, uh, I don't have anything to, to show that, but it, it certainly seems reflecting upon society uh, that th there's, a, there's an increase in emergencies. If we think of emergencies as something unexpected, placing the community in danger, there's no time to go to the legislature to uh, try and figure out how to address the emergency. Uh, and, and, and usually we think of emergencies as something in existence. The missiles are in the air, so to speak, or the building is on fire. Um, and again, those happen every day, but it, it, it also strikes me that perhaps uh, what we live in today is not so much uh, a world of permanent emergencies, but a world of constant urgencies. Again, not to say the emergencies are not emergencies, but there are urgencies in, uh, in society today, which it strikes me are uh, best suited by the executive in order to manage them. So I'll, I'll give you two examples uh, very quickly of what I would suggest is an urgency uh, versus an, uh, and, 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 well, that reveal an emergency, and we can see we can see where the urgencies are. Uh, even though these two examples are going to be emergencies, so take for example a city where the electrical lines and the transformers and various uh, all types of uh, uh, the mechanics of of getting electricity around to the system, which are beyond my comprehension, 
are buried very deep under the city. This, this, is, this is not uncommon. Um, uh, and, uh, and so, because of course, cities are dense and they existed before electricity. So, but often happens in building and developing these utilities. Now, sometimes they are very uh, shallow, but there's often burrowing if the land allows very, very deep uh, under the city uh, and in order to lay the cables or to even uh, make water move in, in various ways in better. Well, what happens if there's some problem deep under the in the earth under uh, in a city where it, something happens and the entire electrical grid goes out for a city of say 5 million people? Uh, well, and that problem is sitting deep, deep under a 10 story residential building. Perhaps it's going to take seven days in order to get there. Uh, because in these instances where things are buried very deep, uh, usually the way you get to them is not burrowing directly down, that you go from a distance and then you burrow underground from a, from a far distance until you get uh, to the place. Um, for what it's worth, I had this experience 20 years ago in, uh, in Chicago, um, uh, where there were this problem. And uh, the, the uh, although 20 years ago, as we'll, we'll see, we were, although we were with uh, reliant on email, and of course, electricity was important. Uh, but uh, the interconnectedness of the economy, the interconnectedness of our lives, uh, was, uh, it, it, it was, was not quite the way it is now with our technology. So going several days without electricity was very serious and it was dangerous uh, in, in Chicago uh, when the, uh, in, in the area of the city that, uh, that was out of power. Um, but uh, I, I think we probably all imagine that today that if something like that happened and if it took out a whole city uh, and it took a week to get electricity uh, re recovered, uh, that, that that poses enormous risks to health, to the economy, to safety. And uh, what if the problem could be solved by demolishing that residential building? And it could be solved very quickly. It could be solved by tomorrow morning. Uh, or we'd have to wait a week in order to, uh, to uh, with, with a city of 5 million people, uh, completely shut down. That's an emergency, I would say. Um, and it's likely the case that most people would say that the executive of that city, if that is uh, her, uh, if she's the one who makes the decision on, on how to deal with the, uh, the uh, electrical grid and to fix it, um, it, most people I think would be comfortable with uh, demolishing that building. And uh, it's it, uh, and I, I question, although uh, getting a court order uh, would be good in terms of making sure that passions are are cooled and things are thought through uh, with rationality. Uh, how many times these types of court orders are are just formalisms and and is perfunctory. Um, demolishing that building may be what the executive needs to do in order to, uh, to cure that emergency. 
Um, and uh, of course, there have to be taking people's uh, safety and accounts and and uh, that might not be able to happen in you know in five minutes uh, but it, but it also might be the case where uh, people who live in that building may not be able to get back to the building in order to clear out their things um, uh, we, we, we see this 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 is not uncommon natural disasters occur explosions of chemical plants occur uh, explosions of all sorts of things, fires occur, and the evacuations need to need to occur. Sometimes in fires, there needs to be the destruction of homes in order and other buildings in order to stop the fire. So, so, so this type of an emergency, uh, it, it, I think, shows the executive. It reveals the executive's power. But what is it? What is it also showing? Uh, it is showing why uh, I, I would say is uh, what I posed, what I lived through for three days, uh, about 20 years ago uh, in a city is, is different than today. There's, there's today, there's greater technology interdependence. And here's the irony is, is I've, I've of course been for three lectures arguing that we are uh, dependent creatures. We're dependent or, you know, in McIntyre's, uh, term, you know, dependent rational animals, uh, and and uh, and this interdependence is good. The sociality is good. This is this is the only way we achieve happiness is by uh, uh, interdependence, uh, sociality. But today we have a type of interdependence which is which rests uh, not so much on the human friendship level, but there's an infrastructure of technology, which is very different from, from ages past. Uh, and, and we are in, in, in enormously dependent upon this. And, and, and it's, it's not just the case that because some of us might, uh, might think, oh, well, you know, perhaps a few days without electricity might be, might be nice, <laughs> you know, as long as uh, I, but as long as I remained healthy, as long as I had food, as long as I had enough candles, and I had enough light, uh, or maybe, uh, you know, maybe I, I and, and books to read, um, <laughs> and all of that might be, might seem idyllic, but it's, it's not idyllic in the, in the society that we live in, in, in the West. Lastly, in terms of something which is an emergency, which reveals the interconnectivity, and then I'll jump out to urgency and then, and then end here. Uh, it, it, to to move uh, when I when I talk about urgency is I'm trying to move the authority identifying revealing that the authority of the executive to act is not just in emergencies but um, imagine 16 months ago when the coronavirus situation worsened and lockdowns began um, one of the reasons for lockdowns we all know was to try and help manage the uh, the healthcare system, and not to overload our healthcare uh, systems, and uh, and and that was a, a, a seemed like a seemed like a seemed like a valid goal uh, at the time, and so uh, there was, although certainly uh, you know questioning on the margins, but generally in those early days when we didn't know much about uh, the the virus and how it spread or, or when it would, <laughs> how deep it would go, 
uh, is that there, there, there was uh, consternation and concern about the lockdowns, but, but by and large, uh, there was, uh, I, I would say, a consensus in the UK and the US that something had to occur to, uh, to stop some of the activity. But what I want to flip to is not that, but what, what, what happened in the lockdowns is that we became incredibly reliant on the, our technology. And uh, we forget that early in the lockdowns, there was quite a bit of concern over whether the internet would hold. Uh, and uh, as, as people began working from home, as video conferencing began using up enormous amounts of, 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 of the internet, would it hold? Now, now think about 16 months ago. Um, I, 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 I have no doubt that, and unfortunately, I, I think this is something that is, uh, yeah, this is confronted in non-Western countries every day where infrastructure doesn't hold. But uh, for the most part, I think most people listening today, not everybody, but uh, most are, are, are in Western countries. And imagine if the internet failed, what would have our economies been like? What would have our ability to interact with each other been like? How the, the, the people have, and uh, I think you know, universally, uh, no matter what one thinks about the lockdowns on whether they lasted too long or not, uh, people recognize that there was uh, something unnatural happening, keeping people from others. Mm -hmm. And so a question of mental health, a question of child development. Uh, what, how worse would it have been if we um, were instantly cut off from this immediacy of, of connectivity and immediacy of interdependence? Um, perhaps we would have adjusted, but human societies tend to adjust, but it, uh, I, I have a feeling it would have been fairly miserable. Um, so, so it, but it didn't happen. Uh, it, it didn't happen. The internet held in most uh, countries. And it likely helped a bit in, uh, in, in getting through this. I mean, I think you even think about uh, information. There's been so much information that's changed about COVID and the virus uh, over these past 16 months. And uh, things that uh, you know, through the internet may have uh, been distorted or uh, uh, since the understanding changed so much, an article might sit out there on the internet and it's been replaced by new knowledge. All of that has created a lot of chaos. But imagine if we didn't have that information, uh, if we didn't have the information flow, flow that we had, what, what would have happened? Uh, I, I don't know, I, I, can't, I, I really have, I, I don't know what would have happened, but uh, we, we could see that that would have been a horrible situation. Well, it, it, that was a, an emergency which didn't occur, but there was assuredly great urgency around making sure that that emergency didn't occur. Um, and although perhaps it's uh, best that we don't know uh, all the various things that states uh, had to deal with and the threats that they had to deal with uh, that, uh, that, that uh, in order to keep the internet running, um, uh, I, I would argue that the fact that that didn't happen did not mean that uh, the state had no authority to prevent it from happening, uh, even if the, uh, the risk was small, because the catastrophe of that is, is large. It's very easy 
uh, to imagine outside of the COVID situation, very easy to imagine where uh, the state detects malware that is on a private computer and that malware is using that private computer as a host and it is sending out tentacles to try and assess its ability to, uh, to, 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 to use the host, the ability to go in detected. This, this happens all the time, all the time. Uh, every, and, and I, I say that uh, probably not with uh, hyperbole, but, um, but uh, all the time uh, that malware is, is doing this. So if the state identified seriously malicious malware on a private computer that is assessing its ability to use that private computer as a host that could cripple the healthcare system, what should the state do? Should the executive go to the legislature and say, well, we found this host uh, and we found this private computer uh, and uh, we uh, and it, it, this, this, there's malware on here and uh, uh, we don't have any laws that specifically address this. So uh, can we pass some legislation? Um, I, I imagine most of us would, uh, would say no, uh, the executive should act and uh, to prevent an emergency. And we can quibble over the edges of what is the definition of emergency, but as I set it up, the, the emergency, the danger is not active, it's potential. And this urgency, there's an urgency to act. That, and, and part of this, what I'm describing is an urgency to act that is related to our times. It's related to the technology interconnectedness. There's, there may be many other reasons for urgency, uh, and I'll let others describe other types of urgencies, but the, the, the technological interdependence that we have today, uh, it, in my view, uh, this interconnectedness, this technological interconnectedness requires the executive to be on its toes, ready um, uh, to act, trying to, uh, trying to prevent the emer emergency. So uh, the catastrophe of technology failure it requires us to think what happens before an emergency. What, what authority does the, the executive have in this, this uh, regime of urgencies? Uh, it, it, it strikes me that it has the ability to act. Um, so I'll, I'll start to end here and because what I've been attempting to do today uh, is to situate that executive authority that emergencies reveal the executive has. That the authority is there as long as they are following normative morality, as long as their actions and their regulations are conforming to the definition of, of law. And I, I think that that even can perhaps act, uh, be done very quickly in, in certain circumstances, uh, but that they have this ability, the executive has an ability to act with, uh, legally and within a rule of law uh, concept without going to the legislature. But it's not just emergencies. The emergency is just a, an easy window that reveals the executive's authority within a state. We can move that a bit further to urgencies. 
I'll leave for others and perhaps for another time uh, to decide whether the executive has powers beyond emergencies. If you can hear what's happening outside of my, uh, my window, you hear a lot of sirens and uh, fire trucks going by. So there's an active emergency uh, that's occurring as I'm talking about this right now. Um, and uh, it, uh, automobiles are clearing the street uh, um, uh, on this. So in any case, uh, I, I've, I've tried to move this a little bit to see that urgencies can also reveal the uh, authority of the executive to regulate. Um, and uh, again, some other time, perhaps some other person, uh, does it end with urgencies? Does it go beyond ur urgencies on when the executive can act. Uh, I, will, I will close with this, however, that although what I've just set out is, uh, is, is identifying authority in the executive, uh, it, 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 emergencies and urgencies do not suspend ethics. Emergencies and urgencies don't suspend our human nature. So this is why I, 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 I don't exactly see this as uh, extra legal. I don't see this as uh, somehow a threat to the rule of law um, because it would be quite unnatural to try and suspend human nature, to suspend, to suspend ethics, to suspend our purpose. Uh, in fact, these actions need to be in conformance with human purpose, with human nature with normative morality. And the common good is that regulator. Well, now, tomorrow, uh, we're going to get more practical uh, than some of this theory. And uh, what I'm going to present is I'm going to present six practical suggestions on how, uh, what should be kept in mind uh, with regulations and the common good. Uh, tomorrow's lecture is, is called the common good as beacon for regulation. and uh, this is not just something uh, for the executive. This is also something for the populace as well. And it has to do with, uh, uh, and we'll pick up there, is that private computer. I, I personally would not like the idea of the government scanning and going into my computer. I doubt that you would either. Uh, and, and, and perhaps there's a, there's a morality or there's a protection of dignity uh, of humans that stops, that ends the executive's authority there. But in the emergency or the urgency of the situation, um, it, uh, it may need to. The, the, uh, there is a presumption, it strikes me, by the, uh, in, in the public mood in the West uh, that is uh, fostered by individualism and, and liberalism, that we are autonomous individuals and our sense of property is absolute. Um, so tomorrow, uh, what I'm going to talk about from, a, uh, from the public mood <laughs> and from a populist perspective, uh, from the populist perspective, is recognizing that regulating and executive actions uh, are, uh, are moral, uh, can be moral, uh, if they're structured with the normative morality in mind, because of our sociality. And because property is by nature communal, only it's the state that puts the boundaries on 
uh, property and creates private property for facilitating the good. And, and that's more than just tangible things. It also involves capital. Capital is social as well. Uh, so we're going to look at that with a few ideas, and then I'll also uh, provide some some ideas on how the the, the executive uses can in keeping the common good in mind helps to regulate the regulations and limits the executive from abuse. And then we'll have we'll have uh, that hopefully will be very fairly short. I'll just present the six points, and then we'll have a panel um, uh, to discuss uh, the common good. So we have about ten minutes, Chris. Thank you, Ryan, for those fascinating thoughts on the <clears throat> capacity and limits of uh, the executive to act uh, in ways that are not bound by the legislature. I have a few questions to follow up, try to get through as many as we can. Uh, you postulate certain circumstances when an executive may be unbound from the legislature, uh, but it seems to me that it's true that the executive uh, is never and cannot, cannot be unbound from public opinion and public pressure. Uh, as you have said, an election is a meaningful political check on the executive that occurs at a specific time. Uh, and under normal circumstances, the legislature and the state's constitution can also restrict executive action. But beyond those hard political and legal checks, uh, there's also the social power that uh, the populace can always exert on the executive through, uh, through public opinion. Uh, you know, an erosion of public trust can have significant effects on an administration's ability to act. Uh, do you have any thoughts on this outside public pressure on restricting executive action? Uh, yes. Um, so, so I think it's a it's a very good point, uh, Chris, because uh, the executive doesn't it, 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 the executive doesn't sit there with ultimate power, and and uh, it it it's, it seems to me. I mean, perhaps in ages past, and perhaps in other. Uh, yeah, in, in, and I'm saying I need to speak from a, more of a Western perspective. That that in non-Western countries, uh, perhaps the power dynamic is such that the 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 executive uh, isn't influenced or uh, by by the by public opinion. But uh, in the West, the the executive is influenced by by public opinion, uh, and and that creates a certain check. Now, there's, as you described, there's, there's uh, elections, uh, creates a very powerful political check on the executive. It also creates a powerful check on legislatures as well. But public opinion also creates a, 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 a check um, uh, where at some point, uh, there is, uh, and, and and we've we've you know, it's, it's like without going into a lot of uh, details or specifics, um, but we've we've certainly seen this uh, in the COVID era, where there are some restrictions in some places where, uh, when they occur, they're simply not accepted by the by the public, um, and uh, that that might be because the public, uh, perhaps they're they're judging them to be unjust. And unreasonable, um, or they have judged them to have been uh, influenced by uh, for private benefit rather than for common benefit, or it might be that the case that the, uh, the more unfortunate cases is that perhaps the, the public might be so, uh, uh, you know, forgive my um, uh, inflaming language here, perhaps so so uh, Im you know, imbued with individualism that that the culture is respond reacting against these intrusions on their liberty. 
uh, when, when uh, and, and they're thinking about themselves mostly. But the point here is that whatever the, whatever the, the, uh, the, the reason, uh, public opinion does, I, I, I think in, in most democratic states, it does have an influence and it does have a, a regulating effect on, on the executive. Um, I, in, in the US, I, in the UK, polls, opinion polls are, are done a little bit differently in the UK and the, in the US. In the UK, uh, opinion polls seem to be uh, mostly on who would you vote for in the next general election, which does give a sense of, of, of opinion of the majority party and minority party and, and third parties. Uh, in the US, uh, opinion polls are based on do you approve, don't approve of the president or of Congress. And there are multiple every day and maybe maybe too many. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, you know, it, it, no political actor uh, uh, is not following those or paying attention to those because there's, there could be, uh, there could be a situation where uh, it's a matter of prudence as to whether to go X or Y. And then the, the executive needs to make a decision, can't go to the legislature, but needs to use the power of persuasion in order to get the public on their side. Because in, in a, in, in a non-emergency uh, uh, situation or in various other things in regulations, it, uh, it may just be that, the, that, that the, the executive will be ignored if they, if they can't persuade the public. So I, I, I would say that, you know, in emergencies, there might be fiat needs uh, and public opinion doesn't, won't matter. But in general, in the normal course uh, of, of executive action and executive regulation, uh, a public opinion does serve as a counter. We'll close with this um, final question that was submitted by Connor Casey. And this question is about the legal limits on executive power. Um, do you see a broader scope for non-statutory executive power than outlined in Anglo-American case law, like the case of proclamations or Youngstown, where the court said that the executive has no inherent power to impose generally applicable legal burdens or obligations absent statutory authority? Or do you see it as having more of a completion power, which allows it to act without express statutory authority, uh, uh, but to fulfill broader constitutional or statutory goals? Uh, so it, again, uh, a very good question and uh, an astute distinction. I will take a contrarian view that uh, those distinctions that are made are not necessarily uh, categorically exclusive. So, uh, and, and that might sound a bit strange because one side says, well, the, uh, the <laughs> executive must uh, root its, its authority in something. It can't make, uh, it, uh, and, and it can't be general uh, like a statute can. And another side might say, well, or, you know, am I saying that the, uh, that the uh, executive has the ability to, uh, to create law, make law uh, without reference to some uh, to a statute. Um, uh, I, I, my contrarian view is that they, they are somewhat reconcilable, uh, maybe not completely reconcilable, uh, in, in the following way. 
is, is that I, I, I don't think that the executive has the ability to make general sweeping law that people don't know how to follow. So, uh, you know, these legislatures uh, often, and this is, this is the dynamic of the executive and the legislature, uh, the legislature uh, often makes laws where we, we really don't know how to follow them and we don't know how they would be enforced by the state. So the executive steps in to fill in those gaps and, uh, the, the, and, and those need to be detailed. Uh, and, and so, uh, and also in the role of the executive, when the executive makes, uh, makes rules or is executive action, it, it strikes me that the, uh, the inherent nature of the executive, which is to enforce laws to protect the state, it, it requires details. So these very broad, uh, you know, to, to, for an it's poor regulation in, in my view. Uh, for an executive to create regulations that are so broad, we don't know how to comply with them, or we only know uh, how to comply with them when they're enforced. Uh, that, uh, that doesn't mean that regulations have to accommodate every single instance. There can be flexibility, but, but, uh, but, but uh, I, I don't think that uh, the executive can do that. But I do think uh, that the executive, by virtue of the office, in emergencies and in urgencies, I, I, I just don't see how uh, if somebody has to protect the community and that someone has to, uh, someone has to, to um, safeguard uh, the community. The, if the state is natural, there is someone that the political order has, has made the head of the state and, and, and that person in emergencies again, in my view, as an inherent authority to address those emergencies uh, for, the good, for, for the common good. And they're not, not addressing um, them, not having the ability to address them uh, is a failure of the state. And there may be no, nothing in society that, uh, that might be able to address those emergencies other than the state. I think that's a, a good place to leave it for today. So uh, thank you everyone for joining us and uh, we hope to see you tomorrow for our conclusion uh, conclusion lecture of the series and panel discussion. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to keep up on our events, please follow the Common Good Project on Twitter, or you can find a full listing of our past and future events by visiting the University of Oxford Faculty of Law's website. Thank you.